welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. So today uh, we're returning to some readings from uh, the lectionary. David um, preached last week on readings from the lectionary and we're doing the same again this week. Words that churches all around the world will be hearing and receiving from God today. And last week, again, David brought to our attention that Jesus, the light of the world, has come to be a bright, shining light in the darkness, to provide us with an unwavering hope in the midst of a difficult world. And today our readings very much keep us thinking along the same kinds of lines about the hope of Jesus, but they also help us to ask a question, to take the next step from there. So... How are we to live then in the light of this hope? How might the hope of Jesus be demonstrated in the world? How might that light not be hidden, as the Bible says, under a bowl, but be revealed to allow the light to shine and illuminate the whole room, the whole world? I was having a conversation with a friend this week. This friend is an artist, just like I am. And at the moment, this friend is going through a bit of a crisis in their art, the meaning of their artwork. They're really struggling to make work, to make artwork, to figure out what the process is and what, how he makes it. And really, at the root in this conversation that we got to, the root of the conversation, the root of the doubt that he was having is about the value of art in a time such as ours with Uh, news about war and the rumours of war and rising living costs and the pushing of more and more people into desperate circumstances and difficult situations. And so my friend was reflecting, how can he make artwork in a time like this? How can he make artwork and then expect people to pay for it or to buy it or to, to fund him to make it, to make more? In principle, my friend still believes in the value of art, still thinks it's a good thing, but in reality was struggling to make that case for himself, to understand why it matters for himself. In the reality of his own artwork and his own life, he's struggling to reconcile the value of art and the value of art for him. To him, it feels disingenuous to make art at a time like now. And we were having a laugh, though, because um, he was going through this. But personally, for myself, I'm not having this crisis of artwork in the same way. Uh, if you want to buy one of my paintings, I'll tell you exactly how much they are, and I'll accept cash, check, or a bank transfer, no problem. And I was thinking about this, but to varying degrees, we can kind of be affected by a similar crisis, perhaps, in how we live our faith. That in theory, in principle... We understand and we might agree that Jesus is our hope. We can come along on Sunday and we can firmly believe that Jesus is our hope for our lives, our hope for the world. But in the reality of entering into that world, of the day-to-day, of the gloominess of the news feed, of the cold hard bite of the heating bills, in that illness that can't be shaken, in the relentlessness of work or family life, 
our living out that hope is tested? What is the value of that hope if we can't demonstrate it? Where is the light in the darkness if the light only goes acknowledged in here and here and in a room like this in here? And our verses in Micah are words that are being spoken to a people who need reminded that their worship is ultimately worthless unless it provides hope in reality as well. It says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself to God on high? Shall I come with him to him with burnt offerings, with calves, with thousands of rams, with thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn? What shall I bring to the Lord? There can be a lot of talk and a lot of noise made about what we offer to God in a room like this, in worship. And I'm even reminded a little bit of the noisiness going on in the church at large, abroad at the moment as well. Divisions and arguments, leaders failing publicly, accountability structures failing publicly, hypocrisy within and without. What value is our message of hope to a world that's deeply suspicious of the church, of maybe what goes on in a room like this? At this point as well, it almost becomes tired, almost trite to point out the opposition that the message of the church has to the world today. In preparation for this week, I was listening to um, a sermon from somebody uh, who has written a lot about preaching, and he was talking about this theme about living in, as exiles in a secular world, and we've touched upon that quite a lot, looking at the case of Jeremiah about, about living with hope, living in an exile, as exiles in a world that is, um, that is uh, anathema to the message of Jesus. And this sermon was recorded, that I was listening to, it was recorded in 1995, which isn't a million years ago, I'm aware of that, I was certainly alive at that point, but the themes I just thought was interesting, he could have been preaching it yesterday, or today rather, because today's Sunday. How much further are we along today that he was preaching this in 1995? How is this hope and light going to be demonstrated in a world like ours, a world of darkness? And this topic has taken me quite close this week to the early church and their example. And credit where credit is due, uh, this is in large part thanks to Stephen's recommendation for a book. This book's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, The Improbable Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire by a historian called Alan Creeder. So warning now, there's actually quite a few quotes from this book. It's just some really great things to be, to be thinking about and wrestling with with what he says. But here's a passage introducing an early Christian leader and theologian called Cyprian, who was martyred in the year 258 AD. He has this to say, Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage in North Africa, had a plate full of problems. Within the church, he was involved in conflicts with confessors, with lapsed rich people, and even with the bishop of Rome. Outside the church, he and other Christians faced waves of hostility from the imperial authorities. And there was no one inside the church or outside it who had not been seared by an epidemic that had terrified all of North Africa, killing innumerable people. Some Christians were disheartened and losing hope. Others, having received violent treatment by their non-Christian neighbors, wanted revenge against people who had tormented them. The world seemed out of control. Now, I wonder 
if there are any echoes or parallels there to our experience today. Division, hostility, plague, chaos. The early church knew darkness just as we know it today. These Christians knew weariness. They knew disillusion. They knew a world where it was hard to show hope in Christ. How did Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, encourage them? We read on. Amid it all, Cyprian, as bishop, wanted to keep the Christians true to their tradition. This, at its heart, meant embodying the Christian good news, bearing it in their bodies and actions, living the message visibly and faithfully, so that outsiders would see what the Christians were about and ideally would be attracted to join them. So in 256, Cyprian wrote a treatise of encouragement for his people. Beloved brethren, he wrote, we are philosophers, not in words, but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by our dress, but by truth. We know virtues by their practice, rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. And in this book, the kind of big idea of this book on the growth of the early church, Alan Creeder is revealing that the early Christians, they didn't really have grand strategies for mission and evangelism. When I hear about sharing the hope of Jesus, often my mind jumps to evangelism. I don't know if it does the same for you, about telling people about my faith. My mind is filled with things like apologetics classes that I've been to, about how I would argue for the existence of God. I'm thinking about trying to have courage, or maybe the lack of courage, to bring Jesus up in conversations with friends, or to invite someone that I know to study one of the Gospels, preferably one that's um, nicely packaged in a nice uh, unassuming cover with some nice study questions as well. All of those things are great and have their place. And it's certain that the early church when they were asked by people to give an answer for the reasons why they believed the things they believed in, as First Peter admonishes us to do, that they would have had an answer. They would have spoken about these things. And yet, it seems that this was not primarily how their churches grew. And it's not primarily how the message of Jesus seemed to have spread throughout a hostile empire, a place that was completely against the church. It would seem that the church of Christ grew because of a people who did not speak great things, but lived them. They took seriously the call also in First Peter to live such good lives among the pagans. Here's Creda again telling us about another early Christian figure, Justin, who in the 150s AD wrote a reasoned defense of Christianity. In it, he contends that the Christians are growing in numbers because their lives embody the fair commands of Christ. In the Christians who follow Jesus, their critics encounter a good hope that attracts them. Their critics encounter a good hope. This is amongst the people who, in many ways, meet quite privately, who often have to meet in secret, in a time of uncertainty, a time of hostility, hope is demonstrated. Hope is shown in action. The kingdom of heaven comes as a beautiful aroma that might attract a hopeless world towards Christ. 
In the days of the prophet Micah, he received a word from God to call the people of Israel away from erroneous ways. They were outwardly, noisily proclaiming and praising God while at the same time they oppressed their neighbor. To them, Micah says, he has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. In Psalm 15, we read a meditation of David. He asks the question, who may dwell with the Lord? Who may be close to God on his mountain? And his answer, people who walk blamelessly, those who do not slander or reproach their friends, those who stand by their oath to God, even if it hurts them, those who perhaps rather specifically and practically do not lend money at interest or take bribes against the innocent. Quite practical help and advice from a a psalm. And Jesus himself crystallizes this vision of the kingdom of heaven in the Sermon on the Mount, that these are the people who will be blessed, the poor, the mourning, the meek, the merciful, those who hunger for righteousness, the peacemakers, the pure in heart, those who are persecuted and reviled. The picture of what this hope in Jesus looks like in the Bible is a picture of hope demonstrated, hope in action. And really the early church is taking Jesus at his word and putting these things into practice. The hope of Jesus and the light of Jesus so transformed their outlook on reality that the way Christians lived, their character, their behavior began to transform an entire society. Let's go back to Cyprian, the Bishop of Carthage. I mentioned one of the things facing the church in his time was a plague. I know COVID has been pretty bad for people and I don't want to downplay it for a second, but plagues were a lot more dangerous in that day for obvious reasons, basic sanitation and and medical help and things like that. And this one, it almost brought the Roman Empire down to its knees. There was such a shortage of people working due to so many people dying that it also caused a famine. So it was like devastation upon devastation. Yet this plague, and it took place from 249 to 262 AD, it's called the Plague of Cyprian. Not because he started it, but because today we recognize that it's something that he and other Christians did in the face of it, to tend to the sick, to serve those in suffering, to demonstrate Christ's hope in action at a time of disease and death. Another really just practical thing that Christians would do in those days is establish these things, these kind of voluntary societies. People would become members of these societies. Many people would support the work of these societies by financially uh, paying in, contributing. But these memberships weren't dependent on your ability to pay in to become part of these societies. These groups would provide care and support for their members that couldn't contribute. These groups... As well, they were administered. People ran them. They were uh, voted in, these uh, people who ran them by, um, by presidents. And they were chosen not by their, again, their ability to pay or because of their status or because of their influence or position. They were chosen to run these groups because of their character, their behavior, their demonstration that they showed outwardly the teachings of Christ. And one of the things, just really practically, that these societies would do would be to do things like provide burials for their members and their members' families. Ordinarily, this was a costly thing. 
You had to have your plot of land or your tomb. You had to have all the, the kind of ephemera and trappings that come along with burial. And most people who were poor couldn't afford a burial that was with dignity. But again, these societies, they provided that. The way they operated went completely against the grain of the hierarchical society at the time. A culture that rewarded wealth, a culture that lauded influence and kept those who were unable to afford anything firmly shut out the door. The Christians simply wanted to reflect the love of Jesus in their action. And again and again, we just see this picture emerging of people who acted in hope. Again, here's Alan Creeder again. I do apologize for all these long quotes, but I think there's so many great things for us to learn here. And he's sourcing this uh, passage from another early Christian writer, Tertullian. He says, according to Tertullian, the outsiders looked at the Christians and saw them energetically feeding the poor people and burying them, caring for boys and girls who lacked property and parents and being attentive to aged slaves and prisoners. They interpreted these actions as a work of love. And they said, Vide, look how they love one another. They did not say, Aude, listen to the Christian's message. They did not say, Lege, read what they write. Hearing and reading were important, but we must not, but we must not miss the reality. The pagans said, look. Christianity's truth was visible. It was embodied and enacted by its members. It was made tangible, sacramental. And there's just something so significant about that word embodied. For those who follow Christ, that word should send sparks off in our minds. We follow a God who became incarnate, who took on flesh, who became a man in order to show to us, to demonstrate to us, to embody exactly who God is. Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, they were describing a vision of the kingdom of heaven that he had come to institute in his body. Jesus is the example. He is the embodiment of a patience and a kindness that puts into action the love and the hope that he brings God didn't decide to send hope as an abstract principle or a philosophical idea that we had to just give our assent to. God sent his son who lived and died and was raised again as a living demonstration of God's love towards us. And these early Christians that we're spending a little bit of time with today, they took that reality seriously. They took the words of Jesus very seriously that the love and hope of Jesus might be shared, not just in word, but also in deed. And there was no discrepancy between the two, between what was believed and confessed and what was practiced and put into action. The early church, they had a very high call on the life of the disciple to demonstrate this. Again, here's Creda, he's what he has to say about this. The teachings of Jesus, according to Justin, are not only essential for Christians to learn mentally, they are indispensable guides for Christians living. Justin notes that his community doesn't consider people true Christians if they simply quote Christ's teachings, but don't live them. Jesus himself had insisted on this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, but only the one who does the will of my Father. I've just uh, finished watching uh, the first season of uh, this TV show called Severance. 
don't know if other people have seen this or not. It's on Apple TV. Would very much recommend it. And in this show, the concept is, it's kind of like a soft sci-fi uh, series. There's these employees of a company. And these employees have undergone a, a process called severance. And what this means is, when they go to work, their memories of who they are in their outside life, their daily life, is wiped. And so they have a kind of split kind of personality. They have a self that works and a self that has a life. And it almost becomes that these people become like two separate people. And so there might be this person at work and they have no idea that at home they might have a family or they're married or they have hobbies. They have no idea. All they know is their work. And so sometimes it might be that when their kind of outward self goes away for the weekend, that they leave the office in their kind of perception. They leave the office at about five o'clock and then immediately it's Monday morning again. And almost like the, the idea that this self, this idea, this person would be perpetually working and doing nothing else. It's a really interesting concept for a show. And I wonder if sometimes there can be this kind of disconnect, this severance within the Christian. To come to church and to believe in our heads in the hope of Jesus, the light in the darkness. And to return to our jobs and our homes and our hobbies and our friends and to forget to carry that with us and to put it into practice, to demonstrate it. And for the early Christians following in the way of Jesus, this disconnect didn't seem to be as much of an issue. Their emphasis time and time again was about a qualitative difference among the believers, a qualitative difference that created a community that became desirable and ultimately pointed towards the God who stooped down to meet us. I said earlier that these early followers of Christ, they didn't seem to have a grand mission strategy for church growth. They didn't appear to rely on big names to go out and preach to the crowds to spread the message or pull in a crowd of people into the church gathering. And we definitely have names of people from those times. We have the names of martyrs and theologians and bishops and writers, some of whom we've mentioned today. But there just didn't seem to be the same kind of weight put on these names, these individuals that perhaps we can have today in our kind of evangelical kind of Christian world. It seems that the impact and the spread of the early church that started as this kind of strange sect coming out of Judaism with a couple hundred followers, which spread and eventually became the official state religion of the most powerful empire in the world, it seems that the work of the church was done by the nameless, by the unknown people, the ordinary Christians who were simply living well, the unnamed nobodies, not the super evangelists, those who deigned to stoop like their saviour, to provide hope in a hopeless and difficult world. That same hope that eventually became entwined with the highest levels of power was sometimes given by the most unlikely of individuals. Sometimes when travellers from the church did set out into new places, into new areas where the name of Christ had never even been heard, they would be surprised to find that maybe in the town that they visited, there was already a believer, already a single Christian living there. And sometimes it was very often that this lone believer 
were, was maybe a slave or a woman in a household. People who had been carried off as part of the kind of patriarchal structure, a family moving away in seeking a kind of better life. And the slaves and the people in the household, the wife or whatever, they would be carried off with them. And that they would find that this single Christian was maybe there, fervently praying. The believers in Christ would come, remaining to faithful to Jesus, even though surrounded by pagans, praying in hope, living such good lives amongst the pagans that the hope of Jesus would shine out. And that that was how the church advanced in the most unlikely and incredible way. It's deeply, deeply encouraging for us to know that Jesus desires to demonstrate his love through ordinary people. I think it gives us peace knowing that he's already been doing it for at least a couple thousand years. The knowledge that those who were the weakest could attest to their great hope, that we could follow in their footsteps as we also seek to follow in the way of Jesus. It's worth reminding ourselves perhaps that the mission of God is so unhurried. God will go at the pace that he sets. In our Genesis series, we've been seeing time and time again people who are mixed bags, people who keep making silly mistakes, sometimes awful, terrible mistakes, and yet God chooses to work his redemptive purpose through them time and again. Micah, the prophet Micah, reminds us that he's just one of a long line of prophets, a tradition by this point of calling broken people back to God to worship him properly and set him in his rightful place by attending first to the knees of the lowly and the downtrodden. God is dealing with his people patiently and mercifully. And Christ paints this crystal clear picture of what the kingdom of God looks like in the Sermon on the Mount. And so there's a kind of peace, I think, that we can come to this today. When we gather today, there's a kind of clarity available to us. It's actually kind of laid out, mapped out in many ways. The example of so many people who've gone before. There's no magic sauce or special words. There's no clever grand strategy that will suddenly make it explode and just be incredible. But to simply act justly. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with God. Christ ultimately is the source of our hope amidst the darkness. He is the light. He is the one. It's his spirit at work among us as we step out to put that hope into action, to demonstrate it. And so I wonder just as we let that settle on our hearts, if we would just take time to be quiet and to allow God's spirit to breathe and to just settle it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our great hope, our great light that you didn't want to leave us 
in darkness. We were waiting, but you, our great hope and light, came and saved us. That you stooped down, that you came and became a person, that you embodied that love, that you embodied that kindness, just that overwhelming love. And so we recognize, God, that you are the word made flesh. And so that as we seek to follow you, as we seek to go in your footsteps, as we seek to be a people who are carrying on this incredible message of hope, we recognize the incredible witness, the beautiful witness of the saints that have gone before And we pray today that you would give us just an encouragement. That you would give us a peace and a knowledge that you go with us. That as we step into our own lives and circumstances and families and jobs and whatever it is that we do in the rest of our week, that, that you go with us. That you've called us to be these people who are embodying your hope. And so whether that's just in small, ordinary ways with which we can share your good news. We want to lift up the lowly. We want to stoop and help the downtrodden. We want to love mercy. We want to walk in patience and humility. And we recognize that this isn't another thing to strive for, another thing to strain for, but it's something that you, by your spirit, are coming to help us with. Would you encourage us just to be the aroma of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, in our day-to-day -day lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.